So back, and I mean way back in episode 108, which was called Why We All Should Be Concerned About Voter Suppression, we talked a lot about the history of voting rights in this country, the need for the Voting Rights Act, super big hint, it comes back to racism, and how voter suppression was currently happening in this country. And while we'd like to say that here in 2023, things have changed, they have not, given that two of the three cases that we're talking about in this episode deal directly with the right to vote. The third addresses LGBTQ plus rights, but could be interpreted to limit rights much more broadly and in all 50 states. Yikes. And so what SCOTUS will do this term and what they decide in June of 2023 will determine a lot of our ability to keep some basic human rights in a democracy. And the three cases that we're going to be talking about also may impact you, regardless of what state you're in. Because remember when all of our jaws dropped when Roe v. Wade was overturned? There was a huge lead up to that, and it has already changed the lives of millions of women in our country. So listen up. We're going to be breaking down three cases that have been argued in front of the Supreme Court this year and why you should be following these decisions when they're released in June. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that models and normalizes conversations about racism so we can help more white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misashi. Okay, so let's just jump right in. And I promise to keep this to as limited amounts of legalese as possible. Uh, (laughs) Yay, here's for human speak. Yay. I try. Starting with this first case, Moore v. Harper. So this is a voting rights case that examines states' power in federal elections. At the heart of this case is this legal theory called the Independent State Legislature, or ISL for short, doctrine or theory, which is extremely loosely and incorrectly, in my opinion, based on a part of the U.S. Constitution called the Elections Clause. And for those of you who don't have that memorized, I will briefly give you the text. It says, the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. You almost lost me already, but I know you're going to get into why this matters because you use words like thereof and I'm like legal. I don't understand, but I'm really curious how this is going to impact us because I'm actually kind of worried. Yeah. So that was from the Constitution. So you can blame those old white dudes who wrote that. But like the crux of the case really is this. And I think this is why people don't follow Supreme Court decisions. Right. But this is also why we absolutely need to follow Supreme Court decisions, because going back to Morby Harper, this is it. Right. North Carolina's legislative leaders are appealing a ruling from the North Carolina Supreme Court, so the highest court of the state of North Carolina, striking down the state's congressional map as an extreme partisan gerrymander. So in 2021, North Carolina's Republican-dominated state legislature passed on a party-line vote, an extreme partisan gerrymander to lock in a supermajority of the state's 14 congressional seats. And the gerrymandering, which, you know, is basically sort of creating a district, right, or creating like legislative districts in specific ways, it was so extreme that an evenly divided popular vote would have awarded 10 seats to the Republicans and only four to Democrats. So guess who's always staying in power? Right. And we talk a lot about what you just described. Thank you for reminding us about gerrymandering. But we talked about it a lot back in episode 15, 
I mean, we're talking a long time ago of the Dear White Women podcast. So go on and listen to that if you want to understand a little bit more about gerrymandering in particular. Yeah. And so the thing about North Carolina is it was so extreme that it was this a statistical outlier more favorable to Republicans than 99.9999% of all possible maps. Right. Nothing wrong there. No. Because the Supreme Court has ruled that federal courts cannot hear partisan gerrymandering cases, voters contested the map in state court, contending that the map violated the state's constitution's free elections clause, among other provisions. And in February 2022, the North Carolina Supreme Court agreed with voters and struck down the map, describing it as an, quote, egregious and intentional partisan gerrymander designed to enhance Republican performance and thereby give a greater voice to those voters than to any others. So the legislator was like, don't really care. And we'll come up with a second gerrymandered map, which prompted a state court to issue order a special master to create a fair map for the 2022 congressional elections. Because remember, this was at stake at that point. And unwilling to accept this outcome, two Republican legislators asked the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, to step in and reinstate their gerrymandered map. So the Moore case hinges on that ISL doctrine. And in this case, the Republican legislators assert that when it comes to making state laws that apply to federal elections, from drawing congressional district lines to determining the who, what, where, when of casting a ballot, only the state legislature itself has the power to set the rules. And this theory claims basically that the state legislature's powers are so exclusive that they can ignore the requirements of their own state constitution including the fair districting requirements that the North Carolina Supreme Court has enforced under its own state constitutional power of judicial review. So if you're saying, wait, how can they do that? And what? You're not alone. Because this isn't and shouldn't be how our system works. Remember when I said that this whole ISL theory was loosely and incorrectly based on the Constitution? I meant it. Because logically, state legislatures cannot ignore the constitutions that basically provide for their existence, right? And they cannot act outside the law without any checks or balances. If you've been listening to our civics arc this season, you know that this is part of the system and was specifically built into the system. So it's curious that we're thinking about, you know, just trashing all of that right now. Yeah, curious or obvious, right? It doesn't makes sense based, like you said, on our high level civics analysis arc this spring, because the whole point is checks and balances that are built into the system of law and government. And using the argument that if it's not explicitly laid out in the constitution as a federal power, the power is automatically assigned to the state for things like education and voting, right? Like this is what I learned from part of our civics arc. But this makes me really wary now of anybody who's pushing for more and more, quote, states' rights, Because when I hear things like what's happening in North Carolina, it just sounds like an extremely blatant attempt at a power grab. And it sounds like you agree. Okay, so then you said that you think this is incorrectly based on the Constitution, considering I don't know nearly as much as an understatement about the Constitution as you do. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And if you're, by the way, new listening to our podcast, Misasha is actually a Columbia Law School graduated lawyer, so she knows what she's talking about. Well, so that's a great question. And actually, you don't even need to have gone to law school to understand this concept, right? Let's take it back to your high school American history class. Okay. You think I remember that? Okay, well, maybe. Or your fifth grade class, because I've got a kid who's learning this right now. And let's talk a little bit about why this cannot be the case, right? Why it cannot be based on the Constitution. 
for all of the issues that the framers of the Constitution had, right, they collectively fundamentally understood the power of legislatures to be drawn from and limited by written constitutions. I mean, if you think about it, right, they fought a war to break away from a runaway legislature, right, the King of England leading that charge. And they founded a new government based on the idea that legislatures and all government bodies can only act within the limitations placed on them by written constitutions ordained by the people. Right. So the whole idea that the framers just were like, you know what, don't care about that, and that they trash that fundamental principle when it comes to legislating the rules of democracy, that makes no sense. So I think that it's also important to remember that this theory is contrary to the constitutional principle of federalism, right? And this word is used a lot when it comes to conservative justices on the Supreme Court. And the principle of federalism is that federal courts are bound to respect the various ways in which states organize their own governments and to allow the state lawmaking process, including activity by state courts, to operate without undue influence. And I think if you're thinking about like a basic tenet of federalism, it's that, you know, it's important to defer to the government and governmental arrangements that are set forth in state constitutions. But that theory, that independent state legislature theory, would require federal courts to constantly intervene in all these politicized conflicts between state legislators and state courts, right? Like just like what's going on in North Carolina right now over state constitutional matters. And then would already change that checks and balances dynamic that's probably been already set out in the constitution of each state to give more power in the end to state legislatures. So that blurs the line between federal and state controls in a way that I don't think you can actually argue like with integrity that the Constitution intended. Yeah, because in this case, the legislators did not want to listen to what their Supreme Court said. And they're like, actually, we want more federal. Like, So they're skirting their own presumed system to get what they want, as opposed to listening to the logic of their own argument. Yeah, they didn't like the answer. So they're going to go somewhere else. Yeah. Legal theories aside, then. This seems like a pretty big friggin' deal. Like what happens if the Supreme Court sides with the legislators? Yeah. So the immediate issue in the Moore case, right, is whether the state legislature's extreme partisan gerrymander map, right, will stand in North Carolina. But I think it's impossible to keep this to just North Carolina, right? Because if the Supreme Court right, adopts this ISL theory, that would also mean that voters across the country have no judicial remedy in state court or in federal court to fight partisan gerrymandering, right? Because If you think about it, the potential consequences could stretch still further because this theory would really throw elections into chaos because it would basically render null hundreds of election results that were put into place through ballot initiatives, state constitutions and administrative regulations, including foundational state policies like the processes for voter registration and vote by mail and basic guarantees like the secret ballot, right? Because state lawmakers would be able to adopt vote suppression legislation without any checks or balances from state courts or even like a veto from the governor. In other words, like this theory would really just upend a lot the various key aspects of our elections. And as one of the Harper, so that's, you know, not the legislators, but the state that's trying to fight for the correct maps, as one of those lawyers noted, the case could invalidate 50 different state constitutions. And to back up also, what you just said scared me even more because what they're saying is the legislators can go ahead and make all the rules and have no checks and balances. But there is no requirement for the legislators to have any legal background. 
This can be anybody coming in and being like, I'm going to make the rules and there's nobody who can check me is basically what is happening or what is potentially at stake. Right. Right. And if you have a extremely partisan gerrymander, it's like in North Carolina, you have one party that's never going to seek control, basically. Right. So if you're not in line with what that party wants and whatever that party wants is what's going to be the rule, then there's a big issue. Yeah. So do we have any idea of how the Supreme Court might rule? Because I know oral arguments already happened, right? Like, did the justices give it any indication about what they're thinking or how are they responding to the lawyers' arguments? Yeah. So we do have some ideas, although it's like a huge asterisk, right? Because who knows what happens from oral argument to the actual decision being issued, right? So But we do know that most of the justices didn't really agree with the concept of ISL in its strongest form based on the questions that they asked the attorneys during oral argument. And only Justice Gorsuch seemed to express unreserved support for the ISL theory, suggesting that the founding fathers might have had concerns if state constitutions were allowed to trump over state legislatures. Mm, Okay. As a result, a ruling by the court that endorses the strongest form of the ISL theory with all of its extreme ramifications seems unlikely. So maybe that will help you breathe a little easier. Maybe, but I maybe. Right, maybe. So over the course of the argument, the whole oral argument, right, the justices seem to reach agreement in accordance with the Moore lawyer's contention that a state court could at some point violate the U.S. Constitution's election clause and require a federal court to step in to correct the violation, which is what's happening right now in North Carolina. But the question then centered on where to draw the line. And notably, the Harper lawyers didn't dispute the idea that a federal court could review a state court's interpretation of state law and the state constitution. But they just said that that standard to do so should be like really high, right? Almost impossible. One of the Harper lawyers largely concurred to this whole statement of being that standard should be really high, adding that the standard is whether the state decision is such a sharp departure from the state's ordinary way of interpreting its constitution and state laws. So am I hearing you correctly then? Because what they're saying is that if the state is largely already ordinarily interpreting its constitution or its state laws to support its incredibly racist or largely, say, misogynistic or whatever ways that the rules are set up, for example, and they can set up manipulative rules that continue to support the way of thinking to impose that rule over the rest of the state so the other party never gets in power, never has an opportunity to make any change. That's okay because it's not a departure from the state's, quote, ordinary way of interpreting its own rules. So, like, it's fine. Right. Because could we ever see change made in a state like that or a different point of view and different interpretation of the law or different laws? Can they ever get made in this standard? Well, the thing is, you probably have a challenge the first time. Right. And if the challenge went up and the challenge lost, then you could conceivably have a state that moves more and more extreme. Right. But that's the risk. That is the whole risk here. Like and if a state isn't mounting a challenge every single time. Right. Then stuff is going to shift in a more extreme direction. And I think that's the thing, because it now puts the onus on the state itself, right, to have to be like, what are you doing, legislature, and continue to come back? And like, will the federal courts be able to handle that? I don't know. And so, because the Supreme Court doesn't review nearly as many cases, right, or that are appealed to it. So this is a tough one because if the justices settle on this ground to decide the case, right, it seems that the North Carolina courts, specifically the state courts' decisions would be upheld. So 
the Moore lawyer repeatedly affirmed the state Supreme Court's decision to strike down the Republican-drawn congressional map as fairly reflecting North Carolina law. Even though it didn't represent the popular view? Am I getting this right? Like, So I keep my brain keeps going like it's sort of exploding because you said the gerrymander was so extreme that an evenly divided popular vote would have still awarded 10 seats to the Republicans and only four to the Democrats. So is this fair to even think about this as a potential turning point where we might see people switching to a straight popular vote versus the system of gerrymandering? Or is that never is like, is it have nothing to do with this? No, I think that the popular vote in this instance or the popular view doesn't really matter as much because it's not about what vote happened. It's sort of about a preemptive like vote drawing, if that makes sense. Because, you know, when that more lawyer was saying that, it was saying that the court didn't, you know, significantly depart from state law when overturning the congressional map. And so I think that, you know, as Gorsuch stated, right, nobody here thinks the North Carolina Supreme Court is exercising a legislative function. And so I think that there are many things at play here, right, which is what makes this so complicated. But I think in the end, the question hinges around what level of autonomy does the state legislature have, right? And do they need to follow the rules of the state constitution? And is a federal court going to have to intervene every time and potentially just be like, we're going to invalidate the constitution about this one thing, or we're going to go against the constitution. So maybe that doesn't make you feel any better. Probably not. But, you know, what the court does with regard to this theory and how it affects all of our states will be in the end, the real question coming out of this case. And I feel like in the past, whether it was because I didn't know enough then, it would have said, like, logically, this doesn't make sense. There's no way SCOTUS would uphold this. But nowadays, I feel like that's a really naive thing to think, given the makeup of the Supreme Court, given what they've already decided on. And so that was more v. Harper. And I'm almost afraid to ask, like, what's next? What other news are we going to be preparing ourselves for? Well, it's funny that you said that that logically doesn't make sense. There's no way SCOTUS would uphold this. The next case, actually, you know, a lot of people think shouldn't have even been heard by the court because there's so much precedent saying like, this isn't a thing. So you're going to love this one because this is called Merrill v. Milligan. And this takes us back to that same episode that I was talking about at the start, episode 108, which is worth a re-listen or a listen, depending on how long you've been with us, because that's really a primer on the Voting Rights Act, right? So I won't go into the whole thing right now, but this case, Merrill v. Milligan, centers on Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And under Section 2A of the Voting Rights Act, states may not pass any law that results in a denial or abridgment, which is like a limitation of the right to vote on account of race or color. Put simply, Section 2 prohibits any standard practice or procedure imposed or applied to deny or limit the right to vote based on race or color. Cases brought under this section have historically involved two different types of violations. And we're only going to talk about one today, vote dilution or vote denial. So the most common and well-established use of Section 2 and the claim raised in the case we're about to discuss is a vote dilution claim, right, which is raised in the context of redistricting and changes to jurisdictional boundaries. So a violation of Section 2 occurs when states draw district in a way that gives voters of color less power to elect representatives of their choice. The earliest vote dilution cases concerned at-large voting and election scheme, which was really used to drown out the power of voters of color. More recently, vote dilution claims have been brought to challenge redistricting plans that dilute the political power of Black residents and other communities of color on the local, state, and federal levels. 
So I'm going to mention this one case because it's really important to this case. And the Supreme Court has decided several vote dilution cases since the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965, including this one case, which I use a lot in my own redistricting work as a standard, Thornburg v. Gingles in 1986, which established the test to evaluate claims of racial vote dilution and district boundaries. So to establish a Section 2 violation, according to this case, Plaintiffs must show that instead of the challenged map or boundaries which dilute the power of voters of color, there could be an acceptable district that could be drawn that would allow voters of color to elect a candidate of choice. And this is really, really important because let's go back to the case at hand. So on October 4th of last year, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in this case. And the plaintiffs here, who are Alabama voters and voting rights organizations, challenged the congressional map passed by the Alabama legislature after the 2020 census, which is generally when redistricting happens, because you get all the population numbers and you draw your districts, right? The new map maintained only one majority Black congressional district out of seven total districts, despite the fact that 27% of the Alabama population is Black. This percentage suggests that there could, and according to the Milligan plaintiffs, and note that depending on whether you're the plaintiff or the defendant, depending, your name is flipped, right? So just follow along. So this percentage suggests that there could, and according to the plaintiffs, should be two districts where Black voters can elect a candidate of choice. After the presentation of evidence, a three-judge panel at the district court found a likely Section 2 violation and irreparable harm to Black voters. So this district court, right, ordered lawmakers to draw a new map that satisfied the requirements of Section 2. But instead of doing that, the state filed an emergency appeal to the Supreme Court to halt the lower court order suspending Alabama's map. So the Supreme Court agreed, which meant that Alabama congressional map, which a three-judge panel had struck down at the federal district court level, would be in place for the upcoming 2022 election season. And then moving now up to October, right? The Supreme Court heard oral arguments on the case. So what happened? Because that already messed with one election, right? The 2022 elections went ahead on these maps that a court had said, no, don't do it. But they're like, well, we don't like that result. We're going to elevate it to the Supreme Court and you can go ahead with the wrong maps anyway, right? So what happened? Like, did they offer, is the Supreme Court offer any clues about what they think and how they might rule? Yeah, so- Remember what I said at the start of this, Merrill v. Milligan is a straightforward vote dilution case with an outcome dictated by Supreme Court precedent, right? As Justice Kagan noted during oral arguments, this case should be a slam dunk, right? Should have two majority Black congressional districts. Even Chief Justice Roberts agreed in his dissent to the emergency stay order, right? He dissented to that emergency stay order, stating the district court properly applied existing law and extensive opinion with no apparent errors for our correction. So you may be asking, like, why is the Supreme Court even hearing this case? Right. You're not alone. So according to the League of Women Voters, the state argued that its race neutral map, and I'm putting race neutral in air quotes, which only created one majority black congressional district, should not be disqualified just because it is possible to draw two majority black districts in Alabama. 
They suggested that the Voting Rights Act prohibits denying votes on account of race, but does not affirmatively obligate states to redistrict on account of race. I see you shaking your head. Yeah, seems like a creative reading to me too, right? The state urged that the first prong, the first part of the Gingles test, that remember that test that I was talking about earlier, that the community of color must be sufficiently large and geographically compact to constitute a majority in a single member district should be a race blind test is odd because it says community of color, right? And it kind of defeats that purpose of that part of the VRA then, right? As Alabama's argument doesn't make sense if you're thinking about the purpose and the history of the VRA, which is specifically focused on rooting out racial discrimination and voting pursuant to Congress's power to enforce the 14th Amendment. And Alabama voters in the Milligan case argued that Alabama violated Section 2 of the VRA by packing and cracking Black residents to limit their political power. And those two words that I used are terms used in gerrymandering, right, where cracking is diluting the voting power of the opposing party supporters across many districts, or packing, which is concentrating the opposing party's voting power in one district to reduce their voting power in other districts, right, two tactics used here. Importantly, they also, and you thought voting maps just happened based on where you lived, right? Importantly, they also argue that requiring the first prong of Gingles to be race blind would defeat the purpose of Section 2, which is to protect voters of colors from having their political power diminished. And as my kids would say, exactly. You know, during oral argument, Supreme Court Justice Katanji Brown Jackson acknowledged the historical importance of race in VRA case law, noting that It became clear to me that the framers themselves adopted the Equal Protection Clause, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment in a race conscious way, that they were, in fact, trying to ensure that people who had been discriminated against were brought equal to everyone else in society. So that all uh, sounds good, you know, from the justice's perspective, but it's important to note that the fact that the Supreme Court decided to hear this case to begin with, a case that even Chief Justice Roberts agreed was decided by was properly decided by existing law is kind of a big red flag, right? Because he dissented eight months ago and the court is still hearing this now. So makes me wonder, why is this case being heard? So, and the other thing that's scary, because it makes me wonder is like, clearly Roberts and the liberals were still outnumbered because the Supreme Court was able to pause the lower court's order, suspend, what's the right term? Like, They issued an emergency stay. An emergency stay. So they were able to do that in the first place, which means that they still don't have the numbers and still maybe steamrolled into making even more changes, gutting the Voting Rights Act, right? Because they have agreed to listen to this. So this seems like they've made these decisions to even hear it because they have the power to do so. And my brain is just like exploding because we started with like creating the Voting Rights Act. And then SCOTUS started dismantling it piece by piece by piece over the last few years. It's really been coming apart now. And so I'm just a little bit gobsmacked, a little bit like, for real, this is happening? Okay, so what are the implications? Say the worst comes true and the court agrees with Alabama. Yeah, okay. So should the court rule in Alabama's favor, right? future rulings striking down racially discriminatory redistricting plans could be put at risk. And I should note that this is not just like a future thing. This is already occurring because in June of last year, 2022, a district court in Louisiana found a Section 2 violation for that state's congressional map. But the decision has stayed pending the outcome in this case that we're talking about. The racially discriminatory Louisiana congressional map has thus been allowed to go into effect 
for that 2022 election season, right? Just like Alabama's. If the Supreme Court rules in favor of Alabama, that Louisiana case could go the same way. And if that case, this case removes 40 years of precedent that has gone the other way, it won't just be Louisiana and about Alabama that will be challenging Section 2 of the VRA. And there we go. The ripple effects begin. I mean, I figured that that was what was going to happen potentially, but I want to put this in the context of a hundred years from now, right? Because a hundred, where are we right now? We're in 2023. Okay. So maybe call it 200 years ago, right? We still had slavery. I, my numbers are weird, but like, if you think about that arc, right? We're still writing the wrongs that we had in this country for over 250 years. Like it has not been that long that we have started to look out for people of color who have been historically oppressed and their rights been taken away from them. And so what we're doing right now is freaking very clearly backtracking. And so a hundred years from now, are we okay living in this period of time where we are dismantling and moving backwards to a much more striated rights being taken away from people type of society without putting up a fight? Because that's where we're going to be. Those people that we thought that we would have been helping others who were oppressed back in the day when slavery was happening or when Jim Crow laws were happening, like this is actually happening right now. And we will be looked at in the same way that we look back on people back then. Fast forward. Yeah. The VRA is less than 80 years old, right? So we are, this is not like, we're not even undoing centuries of work here. We're rapidly undoing what progress we've made on some level. And even in the near term, right? We have, you just mentioned those two states, Louisiana and Alabama, who are impacted for the 2022 election season. We have a major presidential election coming up in 2024 that will no doubt be impacted by discrimination and political manipulation, depending on how this goes. So now I'm really kind of scared. What the heck is the third case about? Because where are we going from here? Yeah, so it's not about voting rights. That's the good news. Ooh. But <laughs> yeah, but it could be about race and it's definitely about LGBTQ plus rights. And this is a case coming out of Colorado, too. So I thought this might be of particular interest to you. Denver. Woot, woot. <laughs> so in 303 Creative LLC versus Ellenus, a web designer named Lori Smith sought the court's permission to publicly announce that due to her religious convictions, her company, quote, will not be able to create websites for same sex marriages or any other marriage that is not between one man and one woman. So this request conflicts with the law in most U.S. jurisdictions, including Colorado, where Smith is from, right? The law in these jurisdictions require businesses open to the public to serve everyone and avoid discriminating on the basis of sex. And that includes explicitly or implicitly discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. Unprecedentedly, however, the court agreed to discuss what it had set aside until now, the argument that some businesses should be free to deny certain clients due to their owner's freedom of speech that allegedly stretches to their commercial activities. You thought I was shaking my head before. It like hurts so much to shake my head now that I've got to stop because I had heard about this, but I had actually totally forgotten about it. So how the heck did we get here? Especially because wasn't there a bakery case that I got addressed about this sort of issue not too long ago? Yes, to your last question first, and we'll get to that. And as to how we got here, this answer starts with understanding that Smith's legal battle is highly hypothetical, which is weird. Her business does not offer wedding-related services to anyone. What? And thus, she was never asked to offer, nor did she refuse to offer, marriage-related services to LGBTQ couples. 
So why would she relentlessly litigate the matter for years? As others have noted, and a lot of the sources that I read for this cited, part of the explanation is that her case is a test case intentionally brought to the court with the active help of a leading conservative advocacy group, the Alliance Defending Freedom, or ADF. (laughs) Sarah's making the universal head exploding. Because it reminded me of what happened in Roe v. Wade and like the Supreme Court was like, well, we'll pass the law in Texas limiting, you know, abortion until someone has to go and like litigates and it actually gets to test in I can't speak, man. Like it comes into fruition and someone actually says, no, you help so-and-so get an abortion. I'm going to charge you and you pay me $10,000 for this. And like they waited until there was an actual case. So there is no freaking case. So there's just an organization putting a ton of money behind it to make it possible to litigate is basically what they're saying. Yeah. So it's not standalone litigation, right? And as Slate noted, rather, it is part of a nationwide experimental legal strategy spearheaded by the ADF to advance a broader anti-LGBTQ project. I'm still shaking my head. I'm sorry. I know. So the ADF seeks to secure basically advanced judicial permission to engage in what is currently forbidden after the fact, right? Refusals to transact with LGBTQ parties. So they call these preemptive proceedings, right? And in a wave of preemptive proceedings, the organization represents businesses owned by devout Christians who declare an an intention to refuse to deal with LGBTQ couples in the context of marriage. And these businesses sue before they deny anyone's service and thus by definition without being challenged by any legal authority. I had no idea you could do that. Has it worked? Yeah, you totally can do that. And it has worked. This preemptive strategy has already yielded cases in eight states, Arizona, Colorado, Kentucky, Minnesota, New York, Ohio, Virginia, and Wisconsin. And the choice to litigate in various jurisdictions is really significant and important because with appeals to different circuit courts, it promises to eventually generate a dispute between them, which is a recipe for getting the issue to the Supreme Court. Right. The preemptive proceedings are also similarly designed, featuring a two prong offense pattern. The first prong targets states or localities and courts are asked to prevent those government actors from enforcing non-discrimination laws when equality conflicts with religious beliefs. And the second prong directly attacks the LGBTQ community. Critically, as Slate again notes, having courts decide cases without actual conflicts not only raises procedural questions, but also this is super important, can deeply and dangerously influence the substance of the debate. And this has already started to happen. Despite decades of applying non-discrimination laws to all for-profit businesses open to the public, the preemptive strategy has led some lower courts to side with businesses while overlooking the harm they plan to cause. The shift is tightly linked to the litigation's format because there are no actual human victims during the hearing. Therefore, while the business owner's beliefs, aspirations, and talents are amplified, no one is there to authentically depict the humanity and pain of those about to be rejected. Unsurprisingly, such an imbalanced structure gives an unfair advantage to the idea of expanding free speech into the market, even when it means denial of access for all. And so I want to get back to your Kate question now, because for context, this was precisely the step that the Supreme Court declined to take in Masterpiece Cake Shop v. Colorado, when a bakery refused to sell a wedding cake to real humans, Charlie Craig and David Mullins, in the presence of Craig's mother. 
while the Baker won due to concerns regarding the actual state decision against him, the court declined to discuss his freedom of speech in this issue. Instead, it reaffirmed a 1960s precedent called Newman v. Piggy Park to clarify that business owners cannot deny services due to religious objections. With Craig and Mullen's compelling story, the court emphasized how undoing the precedent would cause, quote, a community-wide stigma inconsistent with the history and dynamics of civil rights laws that ensure equal access to goods, services, and public accommodations. And in contrast, when you're thinking about the Supreme Court and when they heard Smith's grievances this past fall, the price of a religious boycott will be concealed, right? Because there, you don't have anyone there who can embody the ensuing harm and remind the justices of the suffering inflicted on actual humans, right, by allowing businesses to discriminate. Nor will anyone actually be able to be there to highlight, as Craig's mother did, that it was never about the cake. It was about my son being treated like a lesser person. Right. And I guess there's no way to force like people can't just show up and protest outside. Like there's no way to do that in these legal structures. And by keeping it theoretical, like you said, you can really remove that human element and the impact, which makes that legal decision more procedural as opposed to really human based when it is a rule that impacts human beings. I just can't believe that they're allowed to do this to litigate in this way. And so therefore, I'm almost afraid to ask. But how did oral arguments go in this one, given all of this? Yeah, well, the Supreme Court's conservative majority seemed to be searching for a way to allow religious business owners to opt out of providing certain kinds of services to same-sex couples while avoiding overturning decades of precedent that prohibit discrimination among customers based on factors like race or gender. And I'm I'm actually like physically raising my hand here. So can I ask a question? <laughs> you are. <laughs> you are. Would you imagine if this was say I don't even know, a different religion, call it a, a Muslim business owner denying service to a white woman for coming in without proper headscarf covering. Oh, yeah. Right. Like it's so arbitrarily like it. Come on, folks. Anyway. So by the end of nearly two and a half hours of oral arguments, the justices seemed likely to back the designer. But precisely how the court will constrain its ruling to avoid broader effects is really unclear. And because much of what the Supreme Court focused on hearing, right, during the oral arguments was what constitutes speech and who is doing the speaking, specifically whether the designer's plan for websites that announce weddings for her clients and display their individual stories represent her own speech as the creator. Because her counsel said that basically her refusal to create wedding websites for same-sex couples is message-based, while the defense argued that the wedding designer's rejection constitutes status-based discrimination. Okay, let's do a little dive there. Message-based versus status-based. Can you explain that, please? Yeah, so it's a great question. It's probably easier to discuss in the context of the arguments themselves. So the state of Colorado presented an argument to the Supreme Court centered on its public accommodation law, right, which the state solicitor general asserted does force Smith to provide wedding website services to same-sex couples since she would provide the exact same service to heterosexual couples. To not provide service to a same-sex couple simply because of their sexual orientation would be a form of status-based discrimination in violation of public accommodation law, which is what the state argued. And the Colorado Solicitor General Eric Olson said, what the company said is under no circumstances will they provide a wedding website for a same-sex wedding, and that is status-based discrimination, and where the status here would be sexual orientation. 
But the Web Designers Council argued the opposite, that her refusal to create wedding websites for same-sex couples is message-based, not status-based, since she does provide services for LGBTQ people in other circumstances. When Justice Sotomayor suggested that her refusal of service was not based on the nature of the message, but on the individual who was requesting service, Smith's counsel said that wasn't a fair characterization. The stipulated facts in the case are that Ms. Smith is LGBT clients. She serves them regularly. She has all kinds of clients, her counsel said. So message based here is about marriage, not about the status of the sexual orientation of the client. So they're making it a free speech argument. I mean, it really reminds me of we just did a, a work gig where we got to d- like discuss intersectionality and how certain protections fall through the cracks. And this feels sort of like they're crafting a similar argument where you can argue your way that, oh, actually, it's not even though the intended the effect will be the same. They're just trying to find a way out and ignore the impact of this by interpreting it as a free speech argument. Does that make sense? Yes. And I think that people love free speech, right? Because it is very easy to sort of try and slot your argument into free speech. But that's not what the First Amendment meant in a lot of ways. And so I I think it's what they have to argue here in order to get these test cases through. But I think that even as we're talking about it, even as you and I are having this conversation about it, it's clearly not free speech. But anyway. Yeah. No, totally. So it's frustrating. And I know you said earlier on that it's not just about LGBTQIA rights, like it also may be about race. Can you describe that, like the implications there? Yeah. So one of the key questions, remember I was talking about how they were trying to contain how they might decide, right? And one of the key questions in the case is whether the Supreme Court will explicitly endorse a double standard that tolerates discrimination against LGBTQ people while enforcing laws banning discrimination based on race. And so the Web Designers Council, Wagoner, insisted that it was highly unlikely that someone would use a religious rationale to refuse to offer services to people of a particular race. However, Justice Jackson said that historically speaking, such a possibility didn't seem all that remote. She said, I was fairly certain that historically opposition to interracial marriages and integration in many instances was on religious grounds. And the liberal justices also pressed Wagoner, the website council, on where the line is drawn for whom businesses can choose not to serve, particularly whether it be legal to refuse service to a disabled or an interracial couple seeking a wedding website if the service provider didn't believe in marriage between those groups of people. And I think it's important to note, as noted by Politico too, civil rights advocates warn that this latest challenge, right, this case poses a danger not only to LGBTQ rights, but also to longstanding laws barring discrimination on the basis of race, gender, and religious belief. Because during the 1960s, as we were just discussing with the VRA, the Supreme Court and other federal courts resoundingly rejected arguments that individuals and businesses could defy laws against race discrimination by asserting religious-based opposition. But since Roe v. Wade was overturned in June, I don't really think anything's out of the question now, as you were talking about at the start. No, totally. And this is really kind of not really lifting, leading me with an uplifting feeling, Misasha. Thanks so much. <laughs> I know you love these SCOTUS episodes. Yeah. Oh, they're so great. No, really, though, it, this is like way more significant than I understood it to be. So I'm really, really glad that you really spent the time putting this together, researching and sharing this with us, because I had no idea just how bad our country could potentially get in the very near future. So what do we do now? Like, do we just like watch and see what happens in June? I mean, what what do we do? 
Yeah. So, well, for the SCOTUS decisions themselves, right, we have no choice but to wait until the court issues their opinions by or before June of this year. But like I mentioned in the third case, and like you were talking about with the lead up to Roe v. Wade being overturned, right? These are test cases. There are a lot of systematic cases that are happening to challenge people's rights. So they may affect your state, even if you don't live in the three states that we were just talking about, Alabama, North Carolina, or Colorado, your rights may also be at stake based on what cases are coming through your own court system. So it's not enough to just understand these three cases, although that might seem like a law right now, I understand that. You have to be watching your own state and see what is going on, see what challenges are being brought and and reach out to us if you have questions. But we need to be discussing these cases and thinking about how we can address things like voter suppression, voting rights challenges and LGBTQ plus rights in our own communities right now in case these rulings come down as many project they will. Because again, it's all of us or none of us and they won't just stop with these cases, these states or these groups. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list.